Something to note. All of the groups covered on this show operate in secret. The details included in this episode are based on extensive research, but ultimately can never be 100% verified, except by society members themselves. Bishop Alphonse Favier could smell smoke in the air as soon as he woke on June 14, 1900. As the sun rose, the fires and chanting crowds drew closer to his cathedral, Beijing's North Church, also known as Beitong. It was a holy day, the Feast of Corpus Christi, a time of communion and celebration of the real presence of Jesus Christ's body in the Eucharist. But there would be no bread and wine today. Bishop Favier had to direct all of his energy to fortifying the walls of his cathedral. Over the last week, as the boxers had marched their way into the city, hundreds of Chinese Christians had sought refuge in the North Church. They now totaled in the thousands, and they were counting on the bishop and God for protection from the mob outside. Favier prayed as one by one the other buildings around him went up in flames. The Nantong Cathedral, the hospital, the orphanage, the rectory, all lost to the blaze. By 11.30 a.m., the boxers completely surrounded the North Church. Nearly 3,500 refugees huddled inside the stone walls, listening to the rebels shouting outside. They called for the destruction of the cathedral and death to the Christians. For hours, they chanted, Sha Sha, kill, kill. Shao Shao, burn, burn. Meanwhile, the Chinese Christians huddled together. Nobody knew how long they could hold off the legendary Society of the Righteous and Harmonious Fists. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson. And I'm Greg Polson. And this is Secret Societies, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Thursday, we examine history's most exclusive organizations from around the world and try to shine a light on these mysterious groups. From the Illuminati to the Order of Nine Angles, we'll explore how much impact each secret society actually had on the world around them. This is our final episode on the Righteous and Harmonious Fists, or as they're commonly known, the Boxers. At the dawn of the 20th century, the secret military group staged a revolution in Imperial China. Last week, we explored the origins of the boxers and their spiritual practices. We saw why, at the turn of the 20th century, the militant society rose up to drive out Western influences from China. This week, we'll follow the siege on Beijing and the outcome of the Boxer Rebellion. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. Now on Netflix, inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman, comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. Hi, I'm Michael Weatherly. And I'm Cody DePablo. We played Agents Tony Dinozo and Ziva David on NCIS, one of the world's biggest shows. And now we're doing a rewatch podcast. This is Off Duty with guests like Sasha Alexander. I'm really happy to see you guys, by the way. Eric Olson. By the way, you broke a finger. I lost a nail. <laughs> We've never really done this. Watch and listen every Tuesday on Spotify. Foof.
By June 1900, China was deadlocked in a terrible waiting game. The imperial government, the Chinese army, and Western diplomats were all engaged in a deadly round of chicken, none of them daring to move first. The Westerners waited desperately for their reinforcements to arrive, but they could only hold their breath. The 2,100 soldiers had seemingly vanished into thin air on their way from Tianjin to Beijing. No one had any idea if they were still alive or if they'd been killed by the rebels. The Chinese generals didn't dare make a move until the Dowager Empress Sashi declared her allegiance to one side or another. Would she help the foreigners survive the siege? or would she drive them out of the city? And the Dowager Empress was waiting to see if the boxers were truly worth their medal. It was known that once they entered a trance state, they were impervious to bullets and spears. But were they strong enough to win this fight against the Westerners, where previous Chinese armies had failed? In mid-June, the boxers showed enough daring to impress Sashi. They made it known throughout Beijing that any foreigners left in the city on the 19th would be exterminated. That date was just two days before the 30th anniversary of the Tianjin Massacre, where a French consul, 10 Catholic nuns, and 18 other foreigners were killed during an anti-Christian riot. The boxers now promised to finish the work of Tianjin and rid China of all Christians and Westerners once and for all. The morning of the 19th, the stalemate finally ended. The Western diplomats all received letters from the Dowager Empress at exactly the same time. She claimed that the imperial government could no longer guarantee their safety, and therefore demanded that the officials and their households depart Beijing within 24 hours. She was siding with the boxers. The diplomats were stupefied. How could they leave Beijing safely? The air outside was choked with smoke, half the buildings in flames. Boxers roamed the streets, looting and murdering as they went. British envoy Sir Robert Hart sent a desperate telegram to one of his Chinese counterparts. It read, You have killed missionaries. That is bad enough. But if you harm the diplomats, you will violate the most sacred international obligations and create an impossible situation. He received no reply. Later that day, the telegram wires were severed, preventing the diplomats from receiving any further contact. So they decided to send a representative to the Zhongli Yamen, the foreign policy office, to plead their case. Surely they would provide aid or some kind of safe passage out of the city. On the morning of June 20th, the German minister, Baron Clemens von Kettele, ventured forth to have a conversation with the foreign office, but he was ambushed along the way and murdered in the street. Von Kettele's death confirmed a horrible truth for the rest of the Western diplomats. No help was coming. They'd have to wait out the siege in their homes and hope for the best. As terrifying as the circumstances were, the Western diplomats could have been in a worse position. All 11 diplomatic buildings were situated next to each other in the same part of the city, in an area known as the Legation Quarter. The Tatar Wall, part of Beijing's system of fortifications, ran along the south side of the quarter, providing a 40-foot-high barrier. As for the other three sides, the embassy's gates and walls provided a loose, defensible perimeter. A combination of the British, Russian, American, German, Italian, Austrian, Belgian, and French embassies formed the outline of a roughly 90-acre home base. 
It housed approximately 3,000 people, a mixture of Westerners and Chinese Christians. Nearly 400 soldiers remained from the original legation forces, and at least 100 Chinese citizens volunteered to bolster the defense. Each fighter took a position along the perimeter, stationed a few yards apart. They lined the walls with hundreds of homemade sandbags, fashioned from tablecloths, curtains, and bedsheets. American engineer Reverend F.D. Gamewell was assigned perimeter maintenance duty. With the team of Chinese laborers, Gamewell fortified walls, barricaded gates, and dug trenches. As the siege continued, every day they went to work on a new section, repairing any damage from attacks. Not only did the Western leaders have to keep invaders out, but they had to care for the refugees inside for however long the siege lasted. Thankfully, there were several clean wells within the perimeter, so finding drinking water wasn't a problem. Food, on the other hand, was limited. With around 3,000 mouths to feed, the diplomats appointed a committee whose job was to scour shops and homes for food, then divide the stores into rationed portions. In one of the shop warehouses, the committee found 230 tons of grain. It was a tribute bound for the palace, but for now, it would feed the refugees. In addition to the grain, the legation had a large stable with several racing horses and pack mules. To the dismay of their owners, the equines would provide them all with meat. By the 22nd, the Western leaders were feeling cautiously optimistic about their chances of survival. With proper rationing, no one would starve. They had a defensible perimeter and enough able-bodied men to hold it. The boxers in their red turbans and sashes made advances against the perimeter on several occasions. But so far, the defenses held. The boxers utilized barricades in their fighting style. As author Henry Keown Boyd explains in his book on the conflict, the Chinese system of attack was one of movable barricades behind which they would advance, dismantling, pushing forward, and rebuilding. The Chinese had a much larger supply of ammunition than the Westerners, but for whatever reason, they weren't very good marksmen. Soldiers on the perimeter reported that the bullets sailed over their heads, useless. In addition to their poor aim, the Chinese weren't as dogged in their attacks as expected. Within the first week of the siege, they built a platform against the southern Totter Wall, which became the most contested piece of the perimeter. Again and again, small battalions would charge up the ramp and engage the Western soldiers. But each time, the Westerners forced a retreat. And after each skirmish, the boxers allowed their enemies time to regroup. A resolute and coordinated Chinese offensive would have ended the siege within a matter of hours. But this did not happen. With much of the fighting focused on the Totter Wall in the south, the majority of the European women and children were housed in the British legation at the northern end of the quarter. The British building was the biggest in the quarter and surrounded by a large wall. It was also directly adjacent to the Hanlin, the great library of China, some of the Westerners were wary about its proximity. If the boxers set Hanlin on fire and the wind picked up in the wrong direction, the sparks could easily set the British embassy ablaze. But others saw the Hanlin as an extra layer of protection. The library housed several precious Chinese artifacts. They assumed that because the boxers were proud nationalists, that the Hanlin would be safe. Surely the great library would be spared the same fate as so many other buildings in Beijing, 
which were now smoldering skeletons. But their hopes were dashed on the morning of June 23, 1900. A strong wind settled in from the north. The boxers set Hanlin ablaze, and with every gust, sparks threatened to jump from the library to the British embassy. If they couldn't contain the fire, the legation quarter would be the next to burn. Coming up, the Westerners finally learn the fate of the missing reinforcements. Parcasters, you know the world can be chaotic and unpredictable. But how far would you go to turn the tides of favor in your direction? In the newest Spotify original from Parcast, we're taking a closer look at bad omens, good luck charms, and age-old traditions that just might have the power to change our fates. Each episode of Superstitions presents a new drama that unpacks a different belief. Can holding your breath while passing a cemetery save your life? Will carrying a rabbit's foot bring you luck? How can you go through life always avoiding the number 13? And why should you try? They may seem mystical, unusual, completely illogical, but one thing is certain, you ignore them at your own risk. You can find and follow Superstitions free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. To hear more ParCast shows, search ParCast Network in Spotify's search bar and find a growing slate of thrilling new series to enjoy. Now back to the story. The siege on the legation quarter in Beijing began in earnest on June 19, 1900. The Western diplomats, their households, and thousands of Chinese Christians had all sought refuge within the 90-acre perimeter, held by nearly 500 soldiers and volunteers. So far, they'd been able to keep their Chinese attackers at bay, but on the morning of June 23rd, the Westerners were under fire, literally. The boxers set Han Lin ablaze, which was directly north of the British Embassy building and a strong wind threatened to carry sparks and embers from one building to the next. A detail of British Marines managed to find a way into the library to battle the inferno. They tried to save some of the artifacts, but they were overwhelmed by the fire and ultimately had to abandon them. While the Marines battled the Hanlin flames, another fire started in the houses to the south. The Westerners now saw flames in every direction. As Henry Keown Boyd explains, the whole area resembled a scene from Dante's Inferno. Men, women, and even children, both Europeans and Chinese, scurried hither and thither, faces streaked with soot and sweat, forming bucket chains and dousing flames, all the while under heavy small arms fire and occasional shelling. But by the end of the day, the fires had been mostly extinguished and the perimeter still held. Even though they'd staved the Chinese army off so far, the Westerners were losing soldiers to battle wounds as well as illness. In the first week of the siege, 18 soldiers were killed, and just as many were seriously injured. At this rate, they wouldn't have enough able bodies to hold the perimeter through July. They desperately needed the reinforcements they'd been promised, but no one had heard news about their whereabouts in days. By now, they were presumed dead. A collection of 2,100 reserve soldiers had left Tianjin on June 10th, traveling north to Beijing by train. It was an 80-mile journey and normally took only a few hours, but they were sabotaged by the boxers. 
The rebels had destroyed miles of railroad tracks. The Western caravan was forced to halt and repair the rails again and again. And every time they stopped, the boxers struck, picking off more and more of their ranks. By June 18th, the caravan had made it only halfway to Beijing. Even worse, they realized they were basically trapped in the city of Longfang. The railroad track ahead of them was damaged beyond repair. A bridge over a river had been completely destroyed, and the boxers had undone all the repairs made to the track behind them. So the Western soldiers couldn't take the train back to Tianjin without suffering even more attacks. By now, their wounded men numbered close to 100. If they tried to retreat on the rails, the injured would surely increase. They had to find another strategy, and they had to act quickly. They were low on food and ammunition. On the morning of June 19th, while the Western diplomats were building their defenses in Beijing, the reinforcements decided to retreat back to Tianjin on foot. They marched alongside the Peihou River, floating the wounded and heavy equipment on commandeered sailboats. But the caravan moved at an impossibly slow pace. The boats constantly got stuck in the mud of the shallow river. But even though the vessels moved at such a glacial pace, the soldiers refused to leave them undefended. After two days, they only made it four miles down the river. And as night fell on the 21st, artillery from the boxers forced them to stop entirely. Most boxers didn't fight with guns. The majority used swords, spears, and their fists. So the Westerners were surprised to face firepower. But the leader of the reinforcements, Vice Admiral Edward Seymour, realized where the boxers' weapons had come from. On the east side of the river sat the Shiku Arsenal, one of the Chinese army's forts. Initially, Seymour decided to turn and avoid the arsenal. He had no idea how many enemy fighters were housed inside, and he knew that his own troops were low on ammo. But in the middle of the night, Seymour apparently had a change of heart. Perhaps he was desperate, or maybe he was tired of running with his tail between his legs. Either way, in the early hours of June 22nd, he led a small battalion of Marines to the arsenal and stormed the fort. The arsenal, while well-stocked, was poorly guarded. Within a matter of hours, Seymour's troops managed to drive out the boxers, sending them fleeing to the south. The arsenal was theirs. With morale previously teetering on a razor's edge, the victory gave them an important boost. Inside, they found 250 field guns, 14,000 rifles, and millions of rounds of ammunition. Even better, there were medical supplies for the wounded and enough rice to feed the troops for weeks. But Seymour's newfound hope was quickly extinguished. Yes, they'd taken the arsenal, but he didn't know what came next. The boxers returned in greater numbers and with more firepower, trying to reclaim the fortress. The Western Army realized they couldn't stay in the arsenal forever. They didn't have the manpower to hold the fortress indefinitely, but they also couldn't flee from the fortress without suffering an enormous amount of casualties. Without enough men to provide cover, the boxers would simply pick them off as they made their escape. But Seymour knew that there was a foreign garrison a few miles away in Tianjin. From the sounds of distant artillery, it was also under heavy attack. Still, if Seymour could somehow get a message to the garrison, maybe they'd be able to spare some troops to help them escape. 
Seymour assembled a small battalion of about 100 Royal Marines. A former British railway officer volunteered to lead the group. He was familiar with the area and thought he could guide the men undetected to the garrison's train depot. But a mile and a half away from their destination, the troops came under heavy fire. They lost five Marines in a matter of minutes and were forced to retreat. Thinking that one or two men might have better odds than a battalion, Seymour recruited a few of the Chinese nationals in the group. The first, a servant, almost made it to the garrison, but was shot and killed by Allied soldiers stationed there. They likely assumed he was a boxer. The second recruits, two Chinese railway workers, went off into the night and were never seen or heard from again. They were either killed or, more likely, they deserted. After all, they'd been forced into the war effort by the foreigners. Finally, Seymour selected a successful recruit. Zhao Yin Ho was a servant to a British Viscount, Clive Bigham. Before he was a servant, he'd been a member of the Chinese Navy and British Royal Navy. Seymour probably chose him because of his excellent swimming abilities. On the night of June 24th, Zhao set off towards the garrison. Instead of following the destroyed path of the train tracks like the previous messengers, he slipped into the water of the Peiho River and swam towards Tianjin. He made it to the outskirts of Tianjin, but almost immediately, he ran into some boxer scouts. They wanted to know where he was going in the middle of the night and why he was soaking wet. Zhao fabricated a story. He told the boxers that he was trying to visit family in Tianjin. Along the way, he spotted the Shiku arsenal full of Western invaders. To avoid them, he jumped into the river and swam the rest of the way. To make sure they knew what side he was on, Zhao told the boxers that his brother had been killed in the fighting. Once Zhao reached his family, he'd find a gun and return to join the boxers and fight himself. The boxers eyed him cautiously, considering his story. They asked for his family name. Quick on his feet, Zhao gave a false name, that of some local tinsmiths he was familiar with. Luckily, the boxers were familiar with them as well. They believed him and let him pass. Once he was out of sight of the boxers, Zhao turned and made his way toward the garrison. When the soldiers inside spotted him, they started shooting, assuming he was the enemy. But luckily, Zhao was a former Navy man. He knew semaphore, a form of communication used by the Navy. Typically, semaphore involved holding flags in different formations. Each position translated to a different letter, sort of like a visual Morse code. Zhao didn't have any flags, but he was still able to approximate the letters with just his arms. And the British soldiers in the garrison got the message. They stopped firing and let him enter the stronghold. Zhao was immediately brought before the senior British officer to tell his tale. Viscount Bigham had given him a note to corroborate his identity when he arrived. But when the boxer scouts had stopped him at the river, Zhao had eaten it in case they searched him. Luckily, his knowledge of the British Navy was enough to convince the senior officer that Zhao wasn't a spy. He welcomed Zhao gladly and with relief. Everyone in the Tianjin garrison had assumed that the men serving under Seymour had been wiped out. The senior officer agreed to send relief troops first thing in the morning. By 10 a.m. on June 25th, a battalion of 2,000 men, composed of Russians, Welsh Fusiliers, and American Marines, marched to the arsenal to liberate Seymour's men. 
In short order, they beat back the waiting Chinese and escorted their beleaguered peers back to the garrison. By now, Seymour's expedition counted 232 wounded and 62 dead. But they didn't find much relief in Tianjin. Here, the boxers were backed by the Chinese army, and for days on end, they fired an estimated 40,000 artillery shells at the western garrison. Seymour and his men were out of the frying pan and into the fire. But much like the forces that attacked the legation quarter in Beijing, the combined boxer and Chinese forces weren't particularly strategic. Yes, they fired constant shells, but they didn't make any attempt to invade the garrison. And the shells only did so much damage. Many of them failed to explode on impact as intended. Allegedly, there was a fair amount of corruption among Chinese government contractors. Therefore, the quality of the artillery had, at best, a 50-50 shot of working. So even though they've been outnumbered for several weeks, the combined forces of Britain, the US, Russia, Japan, France, Germany, Austria, and Italy had so far managed to hold the Chinese at bay. These combined forces were known as the Eight-Nation Alliance. And luckily for the Alliance, as the days passed, more troops trickled in on ships arriving to port in Tianjin. Soon, they'd advance on the unskilled Chinese army and claim the city for the Allies. Then, they'd march to Beijing and lift the siege on the legation quarter. Assuming the men in Beijing could hold their perimeter long enough, they would be saved. Coming up, the bloodiest battle of the Boxer Rebellion. Now, back to the story. On the afternoon of July 6, 1900, a young Russian man exited the French embassy and approached a Chinese barricade in the legation quarter of Beijing. He was a student, and the legation quarter had been under siege by the Boxer rebels for close to a month now. It was too much. He couldn't take this feeling anymore, like he was just waiting to die. So instead, he would meet death head on. With measured, determined steps, he slipped past the perimeter line and walked out into the open, into the middle of the street. He made it about 10 yards before the gunshots went off. The Russian student fell dead in the middle of the cobblestones. He was now one of over 40 casualties during the siege, and he wouldn't be the last. The death was curious. No one was quite sure what had made the young man snap, but it made the mood inside the legation quarter that much more desperate. Everyone wondered, how long would the barrage last? And how long could they last? But unknown to the besieged legation quarter, the armies of the Eighth Nation Alliance were gathering strength in Tianjin. After weeks of bombardment by the Chinese army and boxer rebels, they finally mounted their counterattack. The 7,000 or so Alliance forces were all housed in the foreign garrisons just outside of town. But Tianjin proper was surrounded by a large wall. And inside were reportedly around 30,000 Imperial troops and boxers defending the city. To face them, the Allies would have to storm the city. They decided to go after the gates rather than the walls themselves. The British, American, Japanese, and French troops would attack the southern gate, and the Germans and Russians would attack the east gate. It was a risky bet. The city gates, a known weakness, were sure to be heavily guarded by the Chinese. But without heavy artillery, like a tank, there was no way the Allies would be able to breach the tall walls. 
the gates were their only option. There was also a bit of hubris likely at play. They'd been fighting the Chinese for several weeks now, and by all accounts, they'd been winning handily, though they had fewer numbers. Even if the gates were well defended, what did it matter if the soldiers guarding them couldn't aim their guns and didn't know military strategy? This belief of the incompetence of the Chinese gave the Allies the confidence they needed to move forward with their attack. At 3 a.m. on July 13th, the men of the Eight-Nation Alliance marched on Tianjin. They brought with them fierce determination and three 12-pounder assault cannons. By 5.30 a.m., they were in position, and the assault began. As predicted, the southern gate was heavily guarded. But unpredicted, the Chinese showed a deft amount of skill in their artillery defense. The area immediately outside the city wall was more or less an open field, with only a few small huts and shacks to provide any cover. The Japanese forces numbered around 1,500, and by this point, their forward troops managed to make it across the plain to the gate. They were waiting for the signal to storm the city. However, Japanese General Fukushima believed that these men were already inside the city and requested that the artillery bombardment be lifted, which it was. And almost immediately in response, the Chinese opened fire on the Allied forces from the city walls. The American 9th Infantry, about 900 strong, were sitting ducks on the field. The artillery fire from the city almost immediately pinned them down. They had to crawl on their stomachs across the grass to avoid the hail of bullets. Worse, their bright blue uniforms stood out conspicuously against the grass. Of all the men on the field, they were easy targets for the Chinese marksmen, and they took heavy losses. The infantry commander, Colonel Emerson Liscombe, rushed to rescue the American flag when the soldier carrying it was killed. But Liscombe himself was mortally wounded shortly after. He died clutching the flag to his chest, commanding his men to keep up the fire. On the other side of the city, the Russian and German troops had a similarly disappointing lack of progress. They couldn't get anywhere near the gate and weren't able to relay any communication to the other forces. The firefight continued all day until night fell and the firing stopped on both sides. It seemed that they'd reached a stalemate. The Allies were now faced with a daunting prospect. If they couldn't break the city walls, their only option was to surround Tianjin and enforce a siege. They'd have to starve the Chinese into surrendering. But they knew that the longer it took to win, the worse their odds were of rescuing the legation quarter. Luckily, overnight, two things happened. First, the boxers started to retreat. The Allies were only stationed at the southern and eastern gates, leaving the northern and western gates untouched. Perhaps seeing the writing on the wall, the Chinese soldiers fled, leaving the citizens of Tianjin to fend for themselves. And while the Chinese forces trickled out the north and west gates, the Japanese soldiers were still at work on the south. Around 3 a.m. on July 14th, they managed to place explosives and light them, blowing the gate wide open. Soon after, the Russians breached the east gate and the city fell. Without the Imperial Army or the boxers to stop the Western soldiers, Tianjin was immediately engulfed by raids, pillaging, and violence. As author Keon Boyd writes, 
the city was given over to plunder, rape, and murder of medieval proportions. But the fact of the matter was, the Allies were victorious, and by July 16th, news of Tianjin's fall reached the imperial government in Beijing. The boxers, supposedly impervious to bullets and foreign weapons, had been defeated. The Dowager Empress Sashi had bet on her own citizens, but lost. Now the imperial leaders scrambled to save face. Any day now, the eight-nation alliance would march on Beijing and report their performance. The Zhongli Yamen finally got back in touch with the foreign diplomats. A message came under a white flag. They offered a truce, at least momentarily. For the next two weeks, the refugees of the legation quarter allowed themselves to relax. The Chinese forces were quiet. The Allies were on their way. They were almost saved. Unfortunately, the eight-nation alliance was dragging its feet. Soon after the fall of Tianjin, a newspaper article was published in London. The headline announced the Beijing massacre and fictitiously reported that every European within the city had been executed. Every last man, woman, and child. Other publications picked up the story, embellished it further, and broadcast it all over the world. This made the Eight-Nation Alliance wary to march on Beijing, especially after suffering so much loss in Tianjin. They worried that they might get all the way to the legation quarter, only to find that there was no one left to save. They'd seen how difficult it could be to travel north to the city. The railroad tracks destroyed by the boxers still hadn't been repaired. Even as they gathered more forces from around the globe, they weren't sure how to get them from Tianjin to Beijing. And the longer it took the Allies to arrive, the more disjointed the imperial response became. Keon Boyd explains, a kind of calculated lunacy had taken over. One minute, the diplomats would receive a warning from the Zhongli Yamen that nothing would satisfy them but the utter destruction of the Westerners. And the next, carts loaded with fruits and vegetables would roll up to the gates of the British Embassy. By July 28th, the continued absence of the Allied troops emboldened the imperial leaders. The Chinese army started construction on a new barricade along the Tatar Wall the day after. The Westerners sent a note to Prince Jiang, complaining that this was a violation of the truce. He assured them that what they mistook for a barricade was actually just some road construction, and they shouldn't be concerned. On the 29th, the ceasefire officially ended. Artillery shells once again flew over the walls of the perimeter. Despairing, the Westerners checked their rations. They had enough food to last five weeks. If the soldiers of the Alliance didn't arrive by then, they'd starve to death. Luckily for the legation quarter, the men of the Eighth Nation Alliance arrived before the grain ran out. On the morning of August 14, 1900, British, American, Russian, French, and Japanese forces reached the city wall. They were each assigned one gate to try to breach. At 3 p.m., the British were the first to reach the legation quarter and break the siege. They were followed by the Americans and then the French. However, the Japanese and Russians were delayed by an unexpected show of force from the Chinese army. It was a Hail Mary. While the Chinese army distracted the eight-nation forces, the Dowager Empress fled the city, seeking refuge in Xi'an. She insisted that it wasn't a retreat, but rather an inspection tour of the nation. 
But the propaganda spin couldn't change the truth. For the most part, once the Alliance claimed Beijing, the boxers and their rebellion were done for. Most fled the city, if given the chance. Many were arrested by the Allies and sentenced to death. The Western forces remained in Beijing for a year following the liberation of the Legation Quarter. They plundered the forbidden city and rounded up any suspected rebels, whether they had proved connections to the boxers or not, doling out punishments as they saw fit. An estimated 100,000 people were killed in the aftermath of the rebellion, many of whom were civilians. And it's believed that thousands among them were Chinese Christians. And yet it was the eight-nation alliance that demanded reparations. In 1901, the imperial government agreed to the Boxer Protocol. A dozen or so high-ranking imperial officials were to be sentenced to death for their involvement in the conflict. They also agreed to pay 400 million taels over a period of 39 years to the eight nations for the loss of life. But the agreement wasn't a complete loss for the Chinese. Ironically, the Boxer Rebellion was a partial success. Before the war, the Western governments had been eager to colonize China. Indeed, they'd each earmarked a section of the country to claim as their own. But after the bloody rebellion, they realized that they'd never be able to control the Chinese people. In a sense, it made them less hungry to invade. Their influence actually lessened. The neighboring Japanese instead took their place. It also spelled the beginning of the end for imperial rule in China. In 1901, Dowager Empress Sushi instituted a number of reforms to introduce government oversight and update the Chinese education system. Ten years later, the emperor was overthrown and the monarchy abolished. Sushi had wanted the people of China to stand up and defend themselves, to throw off the yoke of oppression. However, she intended that they free themselves from foreign oppression. In some ways, the Boxer Rebellion was a dress rehearsal for the Chinese Revolution. Because by then, the people of China were able to stand up and throw off the yoke. But it was the freedom from the whims of dynastic rule that they truly needed all along. Thanks again for tuning into Secret Societies. We'll be back next week with a new episode. For more information on the Boxer Rebellion, amongst the many sources we used, we found The Fists of Righteous Harmony, a history of the Boxer Uprising in China in the year 1900, by Henry Keown Boyd, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Secret Societies and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Secret Societies is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Bruce Kitovich. This episode of Secret Societies was written by Abigail Cannon, with writing assistance by Angela Jorgensen and Connor Sampson. Fact-checking by Adriana Romero, and research by Brad Klein and Brian Petrus. Secret Societies stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson. Hang a horseshoe above your door, keep a rabbit's foot in your pocket, and follow Superstitions free on Spotify. Listen every Wednesday for the surprising backstories to our most curious beliefs and thrilling tales that illuminate the mystical eeriness of our favorite superstitions. 